Good morning, church. Good morning. Hey, the candle is lit this morning. Yeah. Want to celebrate a life change uh, this week at Fight Club. Uh, Jacob baptized Preston. And so we celebrate with Jacob and Preston, especially <laughs> Preston's decision of faith uh, to just follow him. Just so thankful for that ministry. Uh, the men that are coming through, learning how just to be men fully uh, devoted to God, to be better husbands and fathers and friends and brothers and everything. We're just grateful uh, for everyone involved in Fight Club. So, hey, I'm excited. We're going to continue our series here in Romans. Uh, I'll tell you what, the last few weeks have just been so good. And, and I have been so excited to sit out there and sit under the teaching of Pastor Matt and Pastor Mark and Pastor Nick and all they've taught us the last three weeks. Can we just show them our appreciation? It's been so so good. You know, uh, we've walked through the first three chapters of Romans. Today we'll finish that chapter. And uh, we've just pointed out along the way that the, the gospel is really the great leveler of all humanity, right? That uh, the first couple chapters, Paul just really gets into how the, the fact that we are broken, that we are separated from God because of sin, sin toward God and others, and that we need his grace. And thankfully, Pastor Nick took us to the good news last week that even though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all can be justified through faith in Christ Jesus and what he has done. What good news that needs to go to all of the world. And so today we are uh, going to read a little bit more and pose a question. And it's this, are, are all religions basically the same? Quick answer, no. That'll do it for the sermon. Let's take communion and, and head home, right? Uh, no, it, uh, it's clear that they're not. In fact, if we look at different faiths, different religious traditions around the world, we'll, we'll clearly see that. But the reason why we pose this question is because there is thought and passion in culture, uh, especially here in the West, that would say yes to that question. In fact, uh, J.D. Greer in his book, uh, The Essentials of Christianity, where we're gathering some of these questions and working through Romans, out of, he, he presents this story of a conversation he had with someone on a plane. And once they found out he was a pastor, they just said, hey, would you explain your faith to me? What is Christianity all about? And so in short, he says he just explains the gospel which we know the gospel is that we are created to have relationship with a loving God. But because of our own selfishness and pride, we, we become our own gods and we choose to sin against God and others, and it separates us from that. But the good news of the gospel is that God not only acknowledged this separation, he also took upon himself how to resolve it. And that looked like sending his son, Christ Jesus, to pay the price for our sins so that we, through faith in Jesus, can be reconciled back to God. So he looks at us saying, you are forgiven, and you are forgiven because he justly put that punishment on Christ his son. And Jesus said, now anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Anyone who sees me as the way, the truth, and the life can come to the Father. But without me, you cannot. And the person he was talking to responds with just disdain in this conversation. And they said, to say that there is only one way to God is the most arrogant, closed-minded thing I've ever heard anyone say. 
Like, what, what is she <laughs> conveying here? Like, and as we dig into this question, we, we can look at just the move in certainly our Western culture, the modern culture, that has really elevated relativism above all else. And there's a move that condemns any faith that would make a truth claim that excludes someone else. In other words, for Jesus to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that's an offensive thing to say in a relativistic world. But the truth is, it's not offensive. It's truth to the human soul. And it is the only way to God. And so how do we go about handling conversations in a culture that would say something vastly different? More, more specifically, our culture would even claim that, you know, it, it might even be hateful for Christians to take the truth that we find in the Bible and apply that to culture, apply that to people who don't believe it, apply that as wisdom and really the way to life eternal and the way to experience life to the fullest here on earth. It's called maybe hateful. Now, let me say this. The truth that we find in God's word, the authority that we know it comes from him and the wisdom that it is for every human soul, that is true. Is it possible for us to convey that in hateful ways, to condemn a world in a way that Christ would not even say is okay? Yes. And unfortunately, churches and Christians have done that pridefully, out of anger or discord. But what we find is that the truth in this word needs to get out. If it really is the only way to life eternal, how can we hold it in? And so the Holy Spirit, as he leads us to share this truth with a world that is desperately lost in need of the grace of Christ, as he leads us through his spirit, we can share it while exhibiting the fruit of the spirit. And if someone says that's hateful or that's not true, they can stand on that themselves. But we should not shy away from the truth that we find in God's word. It is life. It is life. Jesus himself said that, like, pointed to the authority of this. And even C.S. Lewis, he said, as, as you look at the reality that Jesus actually came, there's more historical proof in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus than almost any human in all of antiquity, that he actually came, the words we have were actually his. And when he made claims like, I am the son of God, I am the way to salvation, I am grace, C.S. Lewis says, you have to decide, Jesus is either a liar He's a lunatic or he is Lord. Amen. How many of you know he is Lord? Amen. He is Lord over all and for all. And so I say that to say, yes, the gospel is exclusive. It says there is one God and there is one way to God. And that is through Jesus Christ. But as Timothy Keller so beautifully puts it, it's the most inclusive message of all faiths ever. Keller put it this way. He said, the gospel is an exclusive truth claim. There is one way to salvation and one way to heaven, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. Yeah. And what we just looked at in the last three weeks proves that, that it is the great leveler of everyone who's ever taken a breath 
that God desires to know you and be in relationship with you. And none of us deserve it because of our own choice, but because of what he's done, we can be justified through faith and brought back into relationship with him. And it's not limited to an ethnicity. It's not limited to a social class. It's not limited to a gender. It is the great good news of all for all, for all. And so for us as believers, how do we handle this thought that, man, hey, you know what, everybody doing something else, it's all, it's really all going to the same place. In fact, I came across a quote from a professor from the University of uh, Virginia that kind of takes the words of a Hindu proverb and, and puts it into his own. But he said this about world religions. He said, there are many paths up the mountain to reach God. And it doesn't really matter which one you take. Because when you get there to the mountaintop, it's all the same. Love, light, peace, harmony, gratitude, wisdom, truth, and victory for everyone. There are no religions in heaven, just jelly. <laughs> I'd like to have words with Bruce. <laughs> one, one being like how arrogant that is to not really listen to the differences that exist in different faiths and religions around the world. Some that don't even believe in a concept of heaven. To say we're all on the same path going up the same mountain is just really arrogant. And there, there's a hint in there of like, we want, we kind of want that to be true. Like we want to say everybody's okay. You be you, you live by your truth. And in the end, if you're good enough, it'll all be all right. But even at that, that puts out a lot of standards of what does it mean to be good enough? What does it mean to discover truth? And really the pressure of in my short life, I have to uh, figure out on my own what universal truth is and what salvation is for all of humanity, and it's up to me. No. God has given us divinely inspired word to say this is life. This is truth. This is what it means to be human. And so if you were to just do a quick search of like comparative religions, a chart, pull up a chart of world religions, you can answer this questions, are they all the same? Pretty quickly. Because you can look to like the existence of humanity and it's vastly different in different traditions. Whether we actually have purpose and are made for relationship with a God or whether we're just a result of some cosmic whatever and we're stuck here. The idea of a God, one true God, is vastly different than a polytheistic religion that believes in many gods and many ways to worship, and it's all about finding whatever works for you. But even in that, the, the religions like Islam, Judaism, and Christianity that says, hey, there is one true God, if you look at their sacred text, how they describe that God, the character of God, that mission of God, and what it means to worship that faith is vastly different. And so for us to say, yeah, everything is just a different path leading up to the same mountain is just simply not being respectful to people who believe something and worship something very different than us. And it takes courage for us to say, no, there is differences, which means someone is right and someone is lost. And do we believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that the gospel is really the gospel for the world? And are we going to live in a way that honors him and walks that out? So here's what I want us to consider this morning. 
not just the differences of religions and faiths around the world, but the fact of this. Think about, just as in the first week we talked about a fingerprint of God, think about the fact that every human soul throughout culture, throughout every end of the world, there's, there is a, a remnant of faith there. In other words, there is a pursuit of humanity no matter where you're born into, what your, your ethnicity is, there's a pursuit of humanity to search for meaning and purpose. That is how we would describe religion, man's pursuit of meaning. The fact that it is there everywhere, every time, every space of human history is God's fingerprint on a human soul. He said that he put eternity on the human heart. Search for truth, search for purpose, search for what is right. It is a fingerprint. Even when we look at the vast differences, it's a fingerprint that people want to know what is true and God desires to reveal himself to the, to the world. And we have that in his word and through the gospel. And so today, as we look at Romans specifically, we're going to understand just a couple principles that are certainly for us as followers of Christ, but then we can easily see the differences in other traditions and use these as a barometer of how the gospel is vastly different than a lot of faiths or understandings. So let's just give a little background. If, if you've got your Bible, we're at the end of Romans chapter 3. And again, this letter from the Apostle Paul to the, Romans, uh, the Roman church is intended just to real clearly explain the gospel. And the audience that he is writing to is a diverse audience. The gospel is relatively young, maybe just 20 years or so in existence. The church, 20 years in existence. And here in Rome in particular, the church is made up of Roman citizens, Gentiles, as the Bible would call them. Anyone outside of the Jewish ethnicity is a Gentile. Roman and Gentile citizens who have heard this good news of Jesus and have stepped away from pagan polytheistic practices to say, I trust that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the Messiah. It's made up of Jewish Christians who for generations have lived by the law prescribed in what we have as the Old Testament, seeing that as the pathway back to God and now have seen Jesus as who he is, the Messiah. And so they are stepping out of one way of seeing how they uh, measure up to God, the law, and experiencing the grace of Jesus. But as we read in, the, in his uh, letter, there's some conflict, there's some tension, there's some rub of how do we live this out? What do, what do we do with the differences that we have in our background? What do we do with the differences we have right here and right now? For the Jewish people, this wasn't just a transition in some thought and belief system. This was really a new identity they were stepping into. And so Paul kind of addresses some of these things. And the context is that the Jewish believers were here in this church as it established, and then the Roman emperor cast them out of Rome for five years. And so what the church looked like, how it was established, how they went about worship and following Jesus changed significantly in that time. And if you can only imagine, I imagine like the Roman believers who are hearing that Jesus is the good news and that's all I need. I need to follow him, but I'm justified through him. They're challenging some of the practices of the Jewish believers and saying, hey, we're not going to do that anymore. All right. Let's take a vote. Who's done with circumcision? 
Like, let's just, let's just set that one aside so that growing men, when they join our fellowship, we don't say, hey, Jesus is the answer, but there's kind of this thing, right? Paul mentions that several times because, for, again, for the Jewish believers, it wasn't just a matter of like a faith practice. This was their identity. Like, yeah, you have to be circumcised along with the faith. And so Paul walks through some of this. And uh, again, as we read it, we'll get some just essential principles to our faith uh, that we can apply. So let's read Romans 3, verse 27 and 28. Paul, after just describing that it is through grace that we are saved by faith in Jesus, he said, where then is the boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? In other words, the law that requires you to earn your way to God? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul is just reminding specifically the Jewish believers that it is faith in Christ, which will lead to obedience to the law, that brings justification or salvation and really, if you're following along, he's saying faith based on performance will always lead to boasting. That's your first fill in. Faith based on performance leads to boasting. He's challenging the Jewish believers in, the, in this uh, congregation to really ex accept and believe the truth of the grace of Christ. And he says, you are justified by faith. You were justified by the law of faith. And so let's just put out a couple definitions for us to work with as we explore what this is all about. One would be this, the term justification, which we see over and over again. One way to describe that would be God's declaration that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith. In other words, when Paul says you are justified by faith, as Nick alluded to last week and gave us that illustration of the courtroom, it's like God sitting on this throne room. If you come into his throne room and say, I am a sinner deserving of punishment, but I accept what Jesus has done for, for me, God declares you righteous because of what Christ has done. He imputes or gives you credit for Christ's life. And not only that, he sent Christ to pay the punishment for your sin. And so when we come to faith, we are declared righteous with God. One time, declaration, identity shift from apart from God to his child. We are declared righteous. Now, there is a process with what we do with that. How do we follow Jesus after that declaration? And we would say that's called sanctification. That's called like living out our faith, the process of discipleship, maybe. And that is the process of becoming more Christ-like as God infuses his righteousness into us as we live by faith in the gospel. I don't know about you, but I know when I came to the saving grace of Jesus and God declared me righteous, I still had a lot of junk to deal with. Still had a lot of bad habits to overcome. Still had, had issues in my life that I needed to surrender to Christ. Even idols in my own life. And the process of sanctification is just over and over again surrendering our life to Christ. Saying, I want to be more Christ-like. God, give me the fruit of your Holy Spirit, the power of your Holy Spirit to live that out. Now these things, while they're related, one can lead to the other. But one will never produce the other. 
That is justification, that declaration of you are righteous in God's sight because of Christ. That ought to make us respond with love and gratitude to his grace and make us want to pursue him, want to live by his word, want to take this process of sanctification and be more like Christ. That justification will produce a desire for sanctification in us. But what Paul is saying is that we can't pursue the process of becoming more like Christ without first being justified. In other words, we can't ever earn our way back. We can't ever become like Jesus on our own. It will never produce the righteousness that we have only through faith in Jesus. And so Paul is saying, as you pursue Christ, this is not about performance. It's about being secure in your identity as a child of God through what Jesus has done for you. And it's about walking in obedience as you become more like Christ. But never get them flipped around. Never think it's up to you to earn your way back to God. Never think it's up to you or you have the power to overcome what Jesus has done. And you, you somehow can earn your way in a way that Jesus can't. And so what does this have to do with us? <laughs> Paul is saying here and cautioning us that how easy it is for us to get or to slide into things that are the gospel plus this. That was the Jewish people's struggle here. It's the good news of the gospel, but man, you got to do this and this and this and this. And we know there's a part of our human heart and maybe out of insecurity, we say, man, the gospel is good, but maybe it's too good to be true. And so in order to prove myself to God, I got to do this and this and this and this. Or we say, man, the gospel is good. But if you really want to be a real follower of Jesus, then you need to see these things the way I see them. And suddenly there becomes division even within the Christian church. There's boasting of I have it and you don't. Paul is saying guard against the spiritual desire to be proud. Because ultimately, as we follow Christ, it will only ever lead us back to humility of falling at our knees in front of him and pleading for his grace. Because we will never do it perfectly. How does that translate to other faiths? Well, other faiths, most faiths would say the existence of God and you earning some sort of appeasement of him or pursuing relationship is really all about you. For Islam, for example, it is based on acknowledging Allah is God, Muhammad is his prophet, and then living a lifetime of strict obedience to the five pillars of faith, of prayer, of almsgiving, of pilgrimage to Mecca. And it's only through this and doing it throughout the course of your life that your weight of your scales might lean to God accepting you. But here's the truth. There's never any assurance of knowing for sure where you're at. Jesus brought a gospel that can give us an assurance of the salvation of our soul, and that doesn't exist anywhere else. In Buddhism, it's much the same. It's an eightfold path of enlightenment that you have to pursue to get to this state of enlightenment or, or nirvana. And there's never any real gauge of, hey, am I getting there? Am I going to get there or not? It's all about your own performance. And self-performance always leads to boasting. And so Paul is saying, don't go there. It's a distinguishment between the gospel and anything else. Let's continue to read. Romans 3.29, he goes on to say, is God the God of the Jews only? 
He's not the God of, is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So what is Paul's challenge here? He said, hey, if this is true, if Jesus really is the son of God that brought salvation to the world, we have to constantly see the gospel as global. For Jewish Christians, this really stretched them because their identity was based much on their ethnicity. And while there are stories of other people joining the Jewish faith, honoring God, this really challenged them to worship next to people that just a couple generations ago, they couldn't even step into their house. To call someone brother or sister, for generations there's been a great divide. And Paul is saying, hey, God is the God of every ethnicity, race, and gender. The gospel is for everyone. It doesn't matter what you think is more important than that truth. That is the ultimate truth. And so for the Jewish believers, he's encouraging them to walk in humility. Their goal of a church in Rome is not to make believers more Jewish. Their goal is to make people follow Christ and become more Christ-like. Now, it's kind of easy just to point the finger and say, yeah, that's, that's kind of silly. That's kind of foolish. But if we open our heart to the Spirit, he might just simply point out how we slide into some of that same thinking. Even in the church, which ought to be diverse in every way, there ought to be a healthy friction between believers as we pursue what it means to know God and follow him. Often we'd rather huddle with Everybody who thinks and believes and prays and lives exactly like me. And it's a challenge, it's a stretch to say, no, God, bring a healthy diversity to us. May we live on what is true in the places where there is differences. God, may that diversity be unified in a way that is only made possible through your kingdom. So Paul is calling us out of this idea that it's just for us, rather that the gospel is for the world. And not only that, centering again on the mission, that that's where God told us to take it. Jesus himself, as he finished up his life here on earth, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is truth? The truth is that God has made every person for loving relationship with him. The gospel brings the great good news to all of the world. And we as followers need to be passionate about pursuing that, passionate about taking that good news to our neighbor, passionate about seeing that good news spread throughout the world in places where it's illegal and it's persecuted, and then passionate about even guarding our own church from division from things that don't need to divide us. Pursuing unity through the Holy Spirit, maintaining that peace that only His Spirit provides. As we prayed for His Spirit to be poured out, that will happen as we pursue the peace that comes through Christ, as we stay focused on the truth of the gospel, and we don't try to add other things and muck it up. All right? So for us, let's passionately pursue this together. 
Let's not be ashamed of saying, hey, you know what? There's differences in this world. There's differences in thought and belief and action. Let's passionately say we believe this is authoritative and this truth is for all of humankind. And let's walk with the Spirit as we share that with others. Let's search this word for truth and understanding. One way I feel we as pastors feel a need for this is even just making sense of what's going on in other places around the world, and in particular in the Middle East. No one's ignorant to the conflict that's happening in Israel between it and Palestine through is, uh, between Israel and Hamas. And this morning, I just want to take a few minutes for us to look to biblical wisdom so that we know how to pray. We need to let this word shape our worldview and call us to the power and the privilege we have as children of God specifically in prayer. And we know that peace, as Nick prayed, comes through the Prince of Peace. And we need desperately for the world to know him. But if we want to just look at biblically some of the background of even the current conflict that's happening, the depth of the disunity, even the hatred and the despair and devastation, we can look even in Genesis. This biblical story starts with God approaching Abram and Sarai, which he later calls Abraham and Sarah, and revealing his pathway to redemption through, the, uh, through them. He says in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, he came to Abram and he said, go to your country, your people, and your father's household, to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. A prophetic image that Messiah will come through Abraham's family. And even though God promises this to Abraham and Sarah, land, descendants, blessing, they're impatient. They can't wait on God's timing or, or in his way. And so in that impatience, they conceive a child. They take it into their own hands to start building their family. And that's done through a slave woman, Hagar. It's not God's design or desire, but God says, I will be faithful to you and my covenant with you even when you are not. However, their sin leads to great consequences. God's favor will be on Ishmael, Abraham's son through Hagar. He'll become a great nation, which you see throughout the Old Testament as you see nations develop and it says like the Ishmaelites or they trace their lineage to Ishmael. But God prophesies what will also exist in the future. In Genesis 12, or 16, 11, and 12, he says, the angel of the Lord came to Hagar, Ishmael's mother, and said, you're pregnant and you'll give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your, of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. A prophetic word of not just current event, or uh, then current events, but what will be played out in human history. Ishmael is born, and then 13 years later, God does deliver a son to Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, the younger one, the half-brother of Ishmael. And God affirms that it's through Isaac 
that the promises and the blessing and the fulfillment of God's purpose and redemption in the world will flow through Isaac and not Ishmael. In Genesis 21, verses 11 to 13, he says this, as Abraham and Sarah have made the decision to send out Hagar and Ishmael, to cast them out of the family, essentially, says the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son, his son for 13 years that lived with him. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy or your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And I will make the son of the slave into a great nation also, because he is your offspring. And so if you look at human history, you, you have in the Bible the, the tracing of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the whole family, the Jewish people, and God's re redemptive work through them. But then for Ishmael, as he is sent off, you have the development of the Arab people, the Arabian Peninsula and beyond, that all trace their lineage to Ishmael, which also means through their ethnic connection, they believe they are the rightful heirs of this promise that God has given Abraham. And so there is great ethnic tension in this land and these promises. But not only that, you see God as he tries to bestow his favor and his protection on the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament, their refusal to walk in obedience. And so sh short of a, a small season of time where they live in peace and independence in that land, they are often ruled by other foreign empires from the Babylonians to the Assyrians, to the Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans, to the Byzantines. They are occupied by these different powers. And the Jews during this time are scattered across the world, creating diaspora communities with all, all with trusting that God will still be true to his promise, reunite his people in this land and bring about the fulfillment of his word and his work. But you also have then the Arab people. After Islam is founded in 6th century AD, 600 years after Christ, they again assert their divine claim to this promise. And so you have both ethnic and religious conflict and claim to the same thing. And you can look at history and just the devastation that that pursuit from both sides has brought. We know that the Arab people have maintained possession of this land for quite some time, 1,400 years, short of the Mamluks and the Ottomans ruling. They've had possession. And then after World War I and World War II, the reestablishment of Israel and Palestine, it's messy. History is long. It's not just about here and now. But here's what I want to encourage us on. When we look through the biblical story, we know and clearly see God's plan for redemption for the world, both in the coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment of human history. The fact that Jesus was born, a Jewish man, in that land. He did bring about the good news of the gospel, and it is prophesied he will come back to that place as a conquering king to establish his rule and reign in the world. And we know it is clearly 
evident throughout Scripture and even throughout the last 2,000 years that there is one who opposes everything that has to do with God's plan of redemption and his promise, and that is Satan. That from the Garden of Eden to Revelation, Satan, his desire and intent is to steal and kill and destroy. And there's efforts that have happened throughout human history to wipe out the promise of redemption from God, to wipe out even the Jewish people themselves, whether that's casting them out in diasporas or even the horrors of the Holocaust or even the terrorist attacks that occurred in the last few weeks by an organization that doesn't just want to overtake the land, they want to exterminate a people. That is a demonic effort to remove us as human beings from this word and from the promise of God's redemptive work in human history. And so for us, how do we pray? How do we trust that God is sovereign over all things? You can't look at the devastation and not grieve. What's happened over the last few weeks, and we ought to be a people who are leaning into the power of prayer that God has given us, praying that the peace of Jerusalem would come through the Prince of Peace. But we even know that Christ, even in his own life, when he approached Jerusalem as he was heading to the cross, he stood and wept over her, saying in Luke 19, if only you knew the day of your peace was coming. Oh, if only you accepted me as Messiah. And so the conflict, yeah, it's messy. And this is what I know, that Satan will do everything in this conflict to destroy life and continue to do it. Whether that's innocent life existing in Israel, whether it's innocent life who oppose the evils of Hamas in the, in the strip of Gaza or in Palestinian territory, Satan wants to destroy what is good, what is life. And so for us as believers, we ought to look at this conflict, see the dignity and the pur purpose of every human soul, and pray that God would extinguish peace but protect those who don't deserve death. Those who he has a great great purpose for, that God would distinguish evil but bring peace to this world. And so for us, as we close, that's just how I feel led to pray for us, that we would unite in the power of prayer, and we would call out evil for what it is, but we would pray that in some way God would miraculously move to protect life because he is the giver of life, he is the giver of purpose, and he is the giver of all good things. So let's lament, let's pray together as we close this morning. Loving God, we just humbly come before you. Lord, devastated by what we see, what we've heard. Lord, the existence of evil around the world and specifically just what has occurred even in the last three weeks in Israel, Palestine. God, we pray that you, the Prince of Peace, would come. We know that is our only hope. We know that your word has clearly said how you came, that you came to redeem all of us throughout the globe, regardless of ethnicity, gender, race. You came to be our conquering king and our prince of peace. God, today we just collectively lean into the promise of your spirit when you say, even when we don't know how to pray, you're Spirit intercedes for us with groans that man cannot understand. Lord, some of us were so heartbroken 
of what we hear and see, Lord, that's what we rely on is not our own words, but just the move of your Holy Spirit to intercede. But we do it with confidence, knowing that you have given us authority and power through prayer. That, Lord, the prayers of your people move human history, change circumstances, bring about miracles. And we pray for all of that even today. Lord, the conflict that exists there in Israel, the conflict that exists where there is oppression and there is evil all around the world, Lord, we pray for a miraculous move of your spirit to end evil. God, we pray for a miraculous move of your spirit to protect life. Lord, those who are, mis uh, who are displaced, those without home or shelter or safety, those without resources. Lord, those who are huddled together as a family, hoping they can make it through this. Lord, those who oppose evil all around the world, but are still oppressed by the very evil they oppose, whether it's in Israel, or Palestine, or anywhere. Lord, it seems overwhelming to us, and sometimes it's hard, Lord, to handle, but we trust in your sovereignty. We trust that you are the king of all kings. You are the Lord of every nation and all peoples, and that at one day, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Father, until that comes, we know it's so that your grace might be shown and that many people might come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So God, as we pray, we also ask that you'd help us live, live with that purpose, that direction, that in everything we say and think and do would express the gospel to a world that is lost and broken without you. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ across the Middle East, Palestinian Christians, Jewish Christians, Israeli Christians, Lord, all across the Middle East, people who have put their hope and faith in you and, Lord, are trying to reconcile, how do I share that? Maybe in places that's illegal, maybe in places where it's going to bring greater persecution. God, give them wisdom and hope and power in your word. God, again, we come to you just humbly saying that we trust you, that you are the giver of truth, the giver of life, the giver of everything that is right. And Lord, we could tell you what to do, but you know better than us. So we just humbly submit and surrender to your will. We ask that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. And Lord, we trust in that confidently through Christ in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I want to encourage you as we close today, um, leaders are up front with communion. Again, this is a great reminder for us to, to come and to just dwell on the extent that Christ went to so that we might have salvation and to enjoy time with God, the fellowship you have. So if you're a believer in Christ, it's open communion. You're welcome to come either spend time at the altar or return and take time in your seat. But my hope is that you would just sense the presence of God and enjoy that. Come, you're welcome.